Artism Podcast, where we explore creativity, inspiration, and the determination it takes to be an artisan. This podcast is for artisans, by artisans. I'm your host, Kathy Duraghi, and I'm thrilled to introduce you to our next guest. I'm excited to sit down today with Birch Norton, the Executive Creative Director at Merge. Birch and I have known each other for close to 13 years, and he's been a client of Artisans for all those years uh, over at his agency, Beam. And recently, Beam joined Merge, and uh, that's what's brought us to this point today. Um, I'm excited to sit down and learn a little bit more about Birch's background and what his origin story was as a, as a creative, how he got a start in this business, as well as what lessons learned he'd be able to share with our audience today. So let's welcome Birch Norton to the call. I just wanted us to have a conversation and kind of get to know each other a little bit better and really learn more about your kind of or your origin story as a as a creative, as an artist, as an entrepreneur. Sure. And be able to share that with people. Yeah. Okay. I loved math and science, but I loved reading and writing. And then, you know, the visual arts. I love comic books when I was little. I would, you know, me and my best friend would sit in our room and while we're recording Casey Kasem top 40 on our, you know, little cassette tape decks, we would be drawing comic books and, um, and just kind of inventing, inventing stuff. Um, and, and really also in parallel, I always had a sort of entrepreneurial bent, um, was always trying to figure out how to make money as a little kid. Um, you know, my parents, my parents were fine, but definitely not wealthy. And, um, was always kind of expected we'd be working. And so I was always trying to figure out how to hustle and set up a lemonade stand. Or like, I think one time I tried to make candles and sell like candles in a little (laughs) booth at at the end of our driveway um, to mowing lawns, of course, and working in hay fields to, you know, pumping gas, waiting tables and just working. But it always was sort of with the bent of how can I sort of figure out something on my own. Um, and, you know, it's it sort of to in college, you know, when I travel, I would travel a little bit um, for a semester. I spent a semester in India, Nepal and Tibet and knew coming back, we kind of want to, a buddy of mine wanted to travel the country. So, but I knew I'd still need to make money. So I ended up buying a bunch of goods. Um, actually, there were pipes, <laughs> you know, mostly and apparel in Nepal and bringing it back. And then we'd go to dead shows and reggae fests and I'd sell these pipes and apparel, you know, clothes, you know, pants and jackets out of basically out of a little tent. It was a good lesson too in product market fit. Um, I think I sold like two, $3,000 worth of the pipes, like basically cleaned out my inventory in like a one five hour stretch at the first show, whereas the clothing took like the entire summer to move. But it was nice. It was kind of this cool feeling of, wow, I I paid $300 for this stuff and I just sold it for $3,000. You know, I had to lug it across the world and 
you know, logistics and rent a rent space and stuff. But, you know, it always was just kind of an exciting, exciting attribute for, you know, uh, area to, for me to play in. Um, on back, maybe a pinging back a little bit to the creative side. So, you know, I, I didn't really know, um, you know, growing up, I didn't have designs necessarily on a creative path. I, I always loved, um, sorry, magnet playing magnet toys clanging there. Like I said, I always appreciated the arts and film photography. Um, and so in college I was actually a public policy major mostly because it was one of the most liberal arts um, options that my college offered. So, cause it at combined, Emerson, right? Um, so that was at grad school. My undergrad okay. was at Hamilton College, okay. um, a little, you know, a small liberal arts school here in the Northeast. Um, but it basically a combined government, philosophy, and economics. And so that was my major. Then I minored in film studies. So you know, kind of keeping the arts paired with this like hyper rational cost benefit analysis plus philosophy, you know, sort of. So those three elements of sort of abstract thinking, hard, tangible measurements and and off the wall creativity have always just not felt um, like competitive interests to me. They always they always just fit um, together. and. So then grad school, I did, I, I think I end up thinking, um, I might eventually become a teacher as a way, you know, as an opportunist sort of combine all of those elements. And I really love little kids, um, worked in daycare centers as well. And, and have coached forever. Um, then I basically in the late nineties, digital media was starting to come out mm-hmm. and, combining my interest in sort of education and teaching. Um, I remember, I don't know if you ever saw this, but, um, mist, you know, was, a a CD based game, you know, mm-hmm. basically an immersive environment, digital gaming experience. You played on your laptop and just the world and the sort of open-ended, um, conceptual design, but also the gameplay that was sort of invisible, but, guiding you through this user experience was just amazing to me. And it really did feel like it was a kind of a brand new medium. Um, The other was Eve was Peter Gabriel's attempt to sort of bring music and gaming and storytelling all into digital formats. And so they got me really excited at the sort of potential for multimedia integration in through digital new digital formats. And that was sort of mid nineties, late nineties, um, stuff that was getting me real excited. And so I sort of always thought, okay, well go back to grad school, go to Emerson, study, um, new media basically was the grad program. And I think I had designs most, I'm probably heading towards educational software. Um, so sort of, again, how do you combine (laughs) storytelling and yeah, and artistry, with logic and user experience to, to teach someone something, you know, pull them in, engage them and, and have them learn in this new mode. Um, as it happened, the internet, the internet wasn't really a, a sure thing that sort of commercial prospects for it. Um, I do 
you know, it seemed at the time like CD-ROMs were going to be a much bigger thing. Um, but sort of while I was in grad school, the internet was was growing and, and taking off. And I ended up, you know, coming out of school, getting a, getting a job at a digital agency. Um, that was Circle at the time. And again, it, it just combined my interests, my skill, my expertise as a writing background, this strong liberal arts background. Also really, it was so writing skill, but then information management, right? Like how do you take abstract, disparate pieces of information and find their commonalities and weave weave to them together to uh, organize, you know, into a more organized experience or or uh, data set for people. And so, you know, combined with my visual studies, film and photography, I, I worked in a photo lab out in New Mexico while I while I was um, teaching at a preschool and um, and waiting tables, you know, just after. So again, this it really is just sort of digital creative media always was this perfect. I got lucky in a lot of ways because it it sort of emerged um, to fit people like me that really had strong interest in writing visuals and analytics and and data, you know, and information design. Um, and, and the, they, the way they all fit together was, was really fascinating for me. So, you know, from there, um, that was the first job. And then it, through the dot-com blow up and whatnot, digital agencies continued to mature. And, um, we, you know, my two partners at Beam, um, Eric Snyder, Dave Batista, and I basically saw an opportunity to break out and start, start our own place with many as that foundation client, we had won a bunch of work from Puma um, based on, you know, some interesting store design and kind of shopping experiences we had cooked up. And um, and we're we're off and running from there. So the friendship and the partnership started a circle and then you yeah. were just kind of, OK. Yeah. Dave and Eric actually were the founders of Circle. Okay. You know, it sort of was a little offshoot from a, an agency, um, PSK. I can't remember all of their names um, was a little agency in Boston that had some interesting work with nine X and the yellow pages. Mm -hmm. And then basically they create a little digital offer. They basically were digitizing the yellow pages, you know, the phone book mm -hmm. back in mid nineties. Um, and sort of from there, an opportunity, this little circle agency got started by Dave and Eric um, that I joined. I worked, you know, at a grad school as a copywriter kind of quickly rose up um, to creative director for many. And then after a couple of years, we saw the, saw the opportunity to kind of break out. Yeah. So that journey from creator or from artist to entrepreneur, even though I know as a young, you know, yeah. as a young and you were an entrepreneur with, you know, doing the various things, yeah. what was that mind shift for you to go from yeah. creating for, because it's different, right? So, I, so for the people that I think are out there listening, there's so many who are creators, but not necessarily thinking of it as a business. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I know. I think for myself, I was, I never thought of myself as an artist. Is maybe part of the, you know, the why it wasn't as big a shift for me. Um, I always wished. I I still have a um, incredible respect, even beyond just respect, sort of um, passion, appetite for illustration, 
great graphic design work. And maybe it's because I've never been able to do it very well. You know, um, my handwriting looks like a third grader. My drawing is clumsy. And so I never, I think, you know, for me, writing was always the pathway in and photography and film. But I also kind of recognize like I had designs on being a screenwriter and maybe going into Hollywood. But I also, I knew sort of what the reality of those prospects were and and how really what a silly expensive medium film is to play in. And, um, and so I don't know, that's why I always sort of, to me, I think I always had a, I never really thought I'd become an artist. It was always taking those creative interests and wrapping them into some other capacity, whether it was teaching or educational software or client work, ultimately where it ended up. But so it, it, again, it, it was always the merging of, of kind of information and creativity together or, you know, how to use creativity to, to pull people in and engage them as opposed to the creativity being the expression unto itself. Mm -hmm. Um, again, I kind of wish I, I would love to be a novelist or, um, or an awesome designer or, or actual artist, sculptor, what have you. But I just, it was never my, I think my attention to detail is, was never, and sort of hand, my precision with my hands was never quite there um, to entertain, to really truly entertain those, those paths. So, you know, it wasn't probably for me, it probably wasn't a giant leap, you know, to, to shift over into more business um, entrepreneurial mode. Yeah. I mean, you're right with illustration and, and comic books. So I had a, an earlier career in comic books. Oh yeah. Which you don't know. I did not know. Uh, yeah, I should send you. I still have some some of them. Actually, the company is still active. It's called oh, Hyperworks. And uh, before I joined Artisan for a couple of years, uh, I was involved with Hyperworks. So I was not the creative myself, but more on the operation side. Okay. But yet, attention to detail, yeah. you know, just it just incredible. Those you know, the, the ink inking was the one that always just fascinated me. Yeah. It's just to be able to, oh yeah, just incredible. Just focus. I, for better or worse, I don't know. It's why, it's why agency life and advertising and always sort of also had some appeal of this, um, you know, not EDD, like I can concentrate for hours, hours, but, but I do need something new every couple of weeks or every, at least couple of months. And so, um, yeah, this like pure focused, uh, this ability to purely deeply focus on one thing for weeks at a time was always a little bit challenging for me. I need it. I like to bounce around. And, and I think too, I think my skill has always been a little bit more at the macro level, sort of what's mm -hmm. the, what is the big idea, come up with some big shifting ideas. Um, and then, you know, good enough at the attention to detail, but not, I'm not a super micro management guy. You know, I like to work with fantastic designers who I kind of keep the big picture on track and get some, get our directions aligned. And then, you know, they're, they're better at the precision mm -hmm. detail orientation than I am. So, you know, that, which I think that artists, you know, different kinds of artists, I guess, yeah. different mediums, different skills, but, um, yeah. but yeah. Curious how you teach that. Um, how are you? 
obviously I've seen you over the years work with a variety of talent and a variety of clients and projects. How do you kind of help someone step out and kind of be able to see that bigger picture? Because sometimes when you're so myopic in something, it's just hard to see anything else. It is. No, that's a great question. Um, I think, I don't know, this, it's a little bit of a sideways answer. Well, the straight answer is it's, it's probably right. How you, I'm a big believer in this, um, Gardner seven principles of intelligence and that everyone, you know, it's not just, I think most people sort of know there's, oh yeah, I'm a spatial thinker or I'm more a words person. And, and those are true. I can't, it was a, while I studied education theory in college, I could remember rattled the seven off, but it even extends beyond that. So it's interpersonal, you know, people who just are so good at, at working, you know, face direct facial interaction, social interactions, there's intrapersonal and people who are great at working with groups and organizing, and they're just their intelligence for managing that stuff. Um, so there's abstract sort of symbol intelligence, a lot of writing and math. There is spatial intelligence and um, and then linguistic intelligence. So I think really different people have different modes of learning, you know, and and they have their natural talents in, in some of those modes or not. So what my experience has tended to be most of the creatives we bring in, they almost all can see the big picture and understand it and then work to get to it um, or create work that addresses it. What I found is a real, it's, it's more at the individual level. It's, it's people's skill sets at communicating at sort of organizing those big picture ideas and then kind of teasing them out. I think we're all sort of, it's, we see fuzzy shapes early on, but then how do you start to, to see them as more defined, crystallized shapes. And then how do you communicate and frame them? You know, in your head, a lot of times people have really clear pictures in their head. The trick in in our business is how do you communicate what we have in our head and kind of know, especially I think creatives do have the big picture. We can see where this rough piece, you know, ball and string and napkin, you know, scribbles are right now, but we know where it's going to end up, or at least where we want to end up. And the challenge, the harder thing is communicating that evolution, that progression from the the little pupa larva to the hatched butterfly and the different stages of that to clients and helping other people not on the creative team see where this is going and, and how it will get there. So I, most of my teaching has been, I think, more trying to help designers. I, again, a little fairly or unfairly, I, it is, I think, unfair in some ways because I think designers, in the end, are doing a lot of the most meaningful work. But I've tended to find people from writing backgrounds tend to be a little bit more naturally able to organize and then communicate. Mm-hmm those ideas and concepts and where things are going to the client. And so sometimes it kind of tends to be, even though the designer is actually doing a lot of the most important work, 
um, the writers tend to be the ones kind of leading presentations and being a little bit more of that go-to, like the creative lead from a project management organization standpoint. Um, just because I think how, especially in digital, maybe where it depends, UX has definitely shifted that, tends to be maybe a little more website information architecture and um, an organization. Um, but, you know, maybe it's just verbal skills as well. I tends to be a little bit the stereotype. The designers are a little bit more, um, a little bit more on the quiet side, you know, for the most part, or just not as comfortable ver with verbal expression. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, with that, with designers, it's trying to help them feel more confident in presenting, talking, hitting key, you know, key points with particular clients that will help them, you know, buy, buy the work. It's really how do you sell the work in, you know, is really the most challenging time uh, or most challenging task, I think, a lot of the time. So, yeah. It's interesting you say that because um, oftentimes when we're interviewing candidates or trying to coach them through, you know, just being prepared for an interview and uh, getting getting themselves out there, a lot of the times we talk about, you know, being comfortable to be able to defend your work. You know, yeah. you've created it. Why did you create this? Like, what was the thinking, the process behind it? Yeah. And it's interesting. Some people don't recognize or they don't put as much emphasis on really sharpening that skill, exactly. the presentation skill. Yeah. And they do it so intuitively. It, it's hard. It's it, it can be a tricky exercise asking someone to really, you know, go internally, internally think about and then break down and then externalize some communication expression of that process that for them is very natural. And they just they do it intuitively. Um, but yeah, more and more, especially UX design is validate the thinking, the rationale for each decision, you know, and that's a lot of it too is, and I think it's, it's different, you know, again, I come more from that digital sort of user experience design space, as opposed to film and, and I'll say sort of more advertise like traditional advertising mm -hmm. where, you know, it is the big picture concept. And then it really is about the sort of artistry and execution of those details that bring it off, which we still need. But, um, you know, in our space, we do, we're, I think you need to give the business rationale far more often. Whereas sometimes on, I'd say more film and even some print, it's just because it looks better <laughs> is sometimes a valid, you know, like that looks cleaner. It fits the aesthetic we're going for the, this sort of subconscious mood, you know, semiotic um, association we're trying to hit on. I think on our space, we tend to need to rationalize it. And then I think that's probably changing, though, across the board for everyone over the last 20 years. It's like more and more creatives need to rationalize and validate the business case for almost everything, you know, and some would argue that's a good thing. Lots would argue that's, you know, been stiltifying to the overall sort of creativity and sameness conservatism in in the industry for the last 10 years um you know fear-based versus um bravery you know and opportunity-based i think um approaches mm -hmm. that from brands i think just all brands have kind of tightened up a bit <laughs> in the last you know over the last 10 15 years what do you think is happening now with brands, kind of with just the state of 
where we are with the yeah, state with, of our world. Yeah, with COVID um, and Black Lives Matter, I have no idea. I mean, it's 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 all over the place, right? Different brands, different segments. Um, I think. I think both, well, let's say, say COVID, I think COVID was, you know, obviously as disastrous and, 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 um, negative effect as it's had, it, it has, the positive impacts are also there and it kind of forced people to think about doing business in some new ways. And, and some of these are things, yeah, brands have been considering for years, but shifting user experience like really recognizing, oh, we have to put user experience at the forefront. And because our user experience means people aren't going to be walking into our stores anymore, it means, okay, how else will they interact with us? Okay, curbside delivery, you know, that's service design, user experience design. So I th- I do think in the long run, you know, it's it's dialed up even more this march towards the the um the value of good user experience at the same time you know the finances and economics are always gonna they're gonna they're ruling the day and um and i think um similar to the last recession i think i think people will tighten up more you know it's it's just the dollars need to go farther than ever before projects are getting cut People won't be taking swings at sort of experimental or, um, you know, I'd say more brand aesthetic oriented projects. Um, they're they're going to need to see the ROI on everything. And that's been happening for years, but I think even more, um, you know, and it depends. It depends if your brand, if you were a pure digital brand that got helped by COVID and everyone's staying indoors, then maybe that's a different case because your revenues are as great as ever. But lots of other folks, obviously, um, consumer brands are are getting cut. So, you know, and then Black Lives Matter, I mean, I think it's fantastic in terms of, yeah, it, it, I think we've all seen some of the polling data. It just, and even it just, I don't know, it it felt different this time. It was like, I think as, you know, as a white man, sometimes in the past, it's, it was a little more touchy, like even, you know, wanting to support the cause and supporting the cause, but also feeling like, you know, this isn't, it isn't my place to really weigh in on this conversation. Like when you ask for my help, I'll give it no problem, but I'm not going to be leading the charge. And even if that's still the case, I think it is more clear this time like everyone's sort of just lack of patience with lack of progress is just, I, you could just kind of feel, you know, and I personally, I do think it is a strong, this is maybe I'll let politics trickle into the conversation, but you know, there was a lot of all the consternation hand wringing about Trump coming in. There was a school of thought that was okay. Well, some, what we, what movements need is a, is a villain, a clear, you know, other to push against. And he would at least give the progressive movement a more clear, you know, a clear um, target (laughs) to sort of be working in contrast to. And so I do think sort of 
as as Trump has taken, you know, more control of that right wing. And I think you see more and more people saying, nope, <laughs> like we need to very, del- in case this is ridiculous. We thought this was clear, but obviously not clear enough. Yeah. And this is, it's, we're well past due this shit. It's time now. And it just, it always felt different this go round and the stats and polling numbers you're seeing and, and we're seeing it, the number of corporate clients willing to jump in and make declarations and say, look, here's, we know it's not just empty words anymore. It's actions. And a lot of them will be internal action. I mean, it's hiring. A lot of it is really prioritizing hiring and pay scales. And, um, you know, so I do think too, I I'm hoping a lot of this time, maybe it's one of my clients, Calvert, a, a responsible investing client, you know, I just, we wrote a piece on greenwashing, you know, and firms saying they're more environmentally focused than they really are, or highlighting like, hey, we now use reusable straws. Meanwhile, their entire supply chain is like a, dis- a carbon, you know, emissions disaster. And I, I do think, you know, and in the past, sometimes the kind of blackwashing, same sort of tendency putting black people in ads. But meanwhile, the corporate boards are still rich, old white men. Um, I think I'm hoping this go around, it's like, it's so widespread that sort of both the like, the benefit of blackwashing is reduced, actually, because everyone is doing like, like, we know everyone is talking and thinking about this, you're not going to get any brand points necessarily like you're only getting brand points by doing, by taking legitimate real actions as opposed to be authentic. It has to be authentic, meaningful actions as opposed to sugar coated and, and also, and the appeal, the sugar coating doesn't work when everything is sugar coated. Right. And so I think it is, it's the brands actually making those internal policy shifts. And, and I, I would love to see again where that's not like the lead in app. One of the big greenwash, the other way to greenwash or whitewash or blackwash is yeah, you you spend more on the advertisement than the actual policy shift. You know, you spend more shouting up from the rooftop, hey, here's what a good job we're doing. Spend way more on that doing. publicizing, getting the PR than actual doing. And I I hopefully there's, you know, going to be some kind of meaningful accounting practices. I think I actually ESG, the rise of ESG in the investment community is actually a big factor coming into play. I think I hate that this is really the moral imperative. You know, I think for progressives, especially, we would have wished the moral imperative to fix these problems was enough. But it obviously hasn't been. Um, And so a lot of the economic and sort of investment research is now showing, look, if we want the economy to keep growing, we need to close this this wealth gap between whites and minorities. Like we need we need to release all the constraints on human capital that this discriminatory system is putting in place for us to compete with Europe, India, China much bigger population blocks and and their growth rates 
are much higher. For us to keep being competitive as a country, we have to remove those constraints. And, and, and we have to do that very intentionally because it really, it becomes, it does hold back, not just, and this is sort of this, the, the like segregationist or the, the racist viewpoint of just looking at it, it, it sucks that this wasn't enough, but that, okay, well, yeah, that's holding back that group. Well, I'm not in that group, so no big deal to me. What? You know, the modern ESG economics stuff is showing that, no, this will hold us all back. <laughs> We're used to seeing certain types of, in, of economic growth in this country. We are not going to be seeing that anymore unless we, you know, knock down some of these walls and, and really open up the opportunity to as many people as we can. So, you know, this, this dovetailing, this sort of more sophisticated public policy planning data and research and investment and economic data and research finally coming the sort of the rise of data, you know, really painting these stories that are really very clear. And again, for better or not, those business cases are what <laughs> they are, what rule the day. And, and for a long, then throughout human history, probably always have to a large extent, you know, um, paired with these moments for sort of justice and what we all sort of moral callings we know to be true, you know, Gandhi and, and the entire civil rights movement just on its face. But when they get more complicated, sophisticated data and analysis actually paints, it also paints the picture. And I think that rational, what's nice, it kind of takes it more into the scientific, rational analysis side outside of politics right? Like it's too easy to get wrapped up. And then the conversation just devolves into yeah. a meaningless place. Um, whereas on the analytic side, it's, look, this is morals neutral. <laughs> this is, it's easier for us to agree. This is how the machine works. And if we all want to be prosperous for the next 50, hundred years, this is how it has to work. And these are the things that have to change mm -hmm. and it sucks, but yeah, humans are greedy. You know, monkeys are we're we're we work in sort of some base ways and um and self-interest is <laughs> has always been a prime motivator. And so, you know, uh, that was a long rambling answer to um it's more just because literally I'm like writing that's what I spent the morning writing. So my head is very much in that space on one of these research papers. But um Well, it's interesting because you were talking about how growing up you had all these different interests that all came together and then kind of just where we are now uh, and seeing your public policy background also mm -hmm. come into play and really yeah. help support the brands as they are moving forward. Yep. It's interesting to see that piece of it come into play as well. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely with some brands more, you know, I happen to be working with, yeah, this it's a ESG, a responsible investing firm, environment, social governance, you know, so it's really in their sweet spot, but yeah, no, it was, It was. I mean, my background, it was fine. I mean, I was raised by hippies, you know, Birch, Birch, that name is because they were riding. My mom's on the back of my dad's motorcycle and passed a little, you know, passed a patch of birch trees that she thought was beautiful, the sunlight shining through. And so that was what they named their son. And, um, and it was back to that entrepreneurial spirit. It kind of, it will, I will say, you know, my, 
my grandfather that I spent the most time with was, you know, a salesman in Long Island in the in the fifties and did pretty well for himself. Was definitely a Reagan Republican, and my hippie mom and dad pushed very hard against, you know, that way of thinking. I was then brought up, sort of with I think the like moral compass of my parents' more very progressive views, but then the sort of I also watched my parents kind of struggle um, financially and and always and frankly depend on my grandfather <laughs> and wanting to not be in that and sort of recognizing like, huh, is that the trade off like greed or moral values and sort of saying okay, well, how can I chart some path in the middle, you know, it's yes, recognize like greed can't be, you know, money can't be your primary motivation, but doesn't mean making money is a, is an absolute evil. You know, it money gives freedom is basically money gives you power, you know, to, to chart your own path. And so that's, I do think that sort of not wanting to be dependent on others was mostly my bent towards entrepreneurial um, uh, you know, attempts, but, um, but yeah, I think for all of us, it's this new way. It's not either, or, you know, I think that's what ESG stuff is. Yeah. This Calvert's position on you can do the right thing because it a is the morally right thing. And because it makes better financial sense, (laughs) like these approaches, whether it is better environmental processes for your company, or governance, you know, gender and uh, and racial diversity in your organization, or data privacy and transparency, they they're 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 actions that better run companies, more successful companies take. You know, this is what modern business is, and so balancing doing the right thing with <laughs> the thing that also makes financial sense is hopefully less of an issue moving forward. I'm hoping this new this new younger generation is like integration, an integration generation, you know. Yeah. And, you know, a good morally sound, financially sound business is also one that creates opportunities for people by hiring and bringing them on and just, you know, exactly. keeping our economies going. So, exactly. um, so I'll bring it back to to that piece of it and this younger generation and and hiring just just as a whole knowing that we are looking at unemployment numbers that we haven't seen in a long long time and that yeah. there are some incredibly talented people out on the job market looking for work yeah um, can you just because as we wrap up our conversation we talk about the, the determination to keep going and any stories of failure and or at a time where you were faced with a you know, with a decision of, oh my God, like I got to do this again or how do I, can I just pick myself back up right. and yeah. go out and fight for myself? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good question. I mean, um, I think trying to think of, um, you know, answer that's not too trite. I think a lot of it is always, you know, A, it it is, um, I don't know, sort of, I'll take my more Buddhist, I'm not like an official Buddhist, but sort of have a, a Buddhist background a little bit and sort of approach it's, look, life is suffering to some extent. <laughs> like that is the foundation of, of the Dharma is like, 
life is hard. It's painful. We get attached to things, but those things die. They leave us. Um, we lose them. And so it's really, you know, the, act, the Buddhist practice is really unattachment, right? This things come and go in our world. And, and that pain and suffering comes from, you know, being, getting attached to them. And so a lot of it is just general, um, general practice of sort of saying, okay, well, my, this account or this routine or <clears throat> this paycheck that I'm accustomed to, there's nothing in the, in the universe that says we're owed that, or that is, is set in stone. You know, so it just, it's sort of recognizing, okay, nothing, nothing is permanent anyway. And so, yep, things will come and go. And, and that's, that's how the world has always been. So it's sort of that acceptance stage. And then the getting back up and saying, you know what, and yeah, I'm creative and I'm, um, I'm insecure about lots of things and can have my, you know, self-confidence rocked with one negative, you know, client meeting where they weren't digging our thing and you go and feel bad and, you know, and then it's sort of, so you accept that, yeah, change is the way of the world and always has been. Um, and then you say, you know what, I'm, look, my skills, you, you know, it does, it does mean having faith in your skills and your capabilities and that a lot of the world is um, sort of the luck and, and angling of yourself into lucky situations where, timing, you know, your skills meet up with at the right time and place with the right group on the other side, you know, and that's, it's easier said than done, but it's sort of acknowledging there are lots of people less skilled than me <laughs> experiencing more success, you know, because they've gotten lucky in their situations. And there are lots of people far more skilled than I am experiencing far less success, you know, back to the gender racial equality topic and like how much luck is always sort of involved. And so just like knowing that things aren't permanent and luck is involved, you just then you settle back into, okay, I just work on my craft, do what I can. Um, there's a place, there's always a place, there's always a client where those skills will match up. Mm -hmm. It may not be the sexiest client in the world, you know, it, it like we know some of those big, sexy clients are highly competitive and there are people that will be better than you and they rightfully should earn the, those jobs. Um, but you know, there are lots of places that they could use better design, <laughs> use better writing and, um, everything in between, you know, and, and so it's finding, getting matched and aligned your skills with, with those, those opportunities. Um, but, you know, but otherwise, yeah, it's tough. I will say, you know, I'm not, the agency landscape is not what it once was, I think. And I think um, the relationships agencies have with clients aren't obviously what they once were. And I'm not really sure if the agency side of the business is sometimes the best path to sort of doing the great work, the big ideas that we used to come up with. Um I think there's still plenty of opportunities where they can do that. But I think I know enough agencies that are struggling just project by project basis, and that's not a good model. Um, and so I don't know. It's Some of this is just, again, back to place and opportunity. It's, okay, does this mean more creatives are going in-house? Um, or, 
Um, you know, and, and how does that landscape of talent sort of talent to task sort of shift? So, you know, that said, I think there are, there are lots of great agencies, lots of great clients still needing the services agencies provide. Um, it's just trying to sort of build up the trust factor enough that those clients sort of give you the seat at the table, um, at the strategic level, you know, um, as opposed to just execution and project-based work. So, you know, and this that's where for, uh, finances and procurement have really come in and shaped things so much. So I don't know. It, that's, again, a little long-winded sort of the environment out there and just um, things I've normally the process when I have a bad day or a bad week or we don't win a piece of business or lose a piece of business, Um it's yeah, you know, things will be okay. They may be different. They may, and they may mean, I don't want sugarcoated either. Like they may mean things will be dramatically different. You know, you're fired. You have to lay people off. You, you need to sell your home. Like those, those are real things. But, um, just remembering humanity has always, <laughs> it, it is, it used to be way worse, you know, and, and it could always be worse, you know, getting a little Dr. Seuss traitness. Um, it could always be worse. And so, um, you know, just, just keep at it, you know, and the different, another day, another opportunity. So gotta, gotta just go back at it. Yeah. Well said. Keep going back at it. Um, where can, where can people find you, Birch? Um, doing these days. So yeah, so right now, you know, um, I'm uh, executive creative director and uh, and UX lead with Merge. Um, Merge is a growing agency um, based in Chicago and Boston, um, with offices also in New York and Toronto and and Atlanta and and St. Louis. So yeah, it's a big, it's a big group of folks, um, stretching across a, a nice focus in healthcare and financial services, but, but also some consumer brands and, um, and really it's full service agency. I'm mostly working on digital and user experience projects, but you know, it's fun really integrating the, the two sides, um, together, you know, that's the era we're in, um, and user experience, how it really and service design really stretches across the entire spectrum from, you know, brand messaging and internal sales messaging and segmentation to actual consumers and and aligning opportunities, services with them. So um, that's where I am these days with um, with some other stuff kicking around. But, yeah, here in Boston, I'm working out of the Boston office and otherwise decamped at home like the rest like everyone who's lucky enough yeah. to be able to work from home um digitally um so up here in ipswich massachusetts lovely little hamlet by the by the ocean um at least for the next couple months so good 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 i remember um when the first time I spoke to you and I had called and actually tried to recruit you. Remember that? I tried to recruit you for, a, I think, a Flash developer role or, or oh, no, something. And you're like, well, that's not quite right for me. Yeah. However, I need to hire. Yeah, yeah. And, I do remember that. Yeah. I feel like, was it Apple? Was it Apple looking for like, or? I, I feel know. like they... uh, No, it was uh, 
Kara. Oh, okay. Right, 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 right. The Another agency, yes. Yeah. I do remember. And you're, yeah. And you're like, no, did you work here in Boston? I could use someone. Yeah. And uh, that was, I was looking back at my files. That was 2007. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's been great. a long time. Yeah. It's been a long right. time. So wow. it's just, it's really nice to be able to sit down with you here and get to, you know, get to learn about your background, which I had no, no idea how, what yeah. brought you to this point. Yeah. So thank you for, you know, giving this opportunity and this chance for us to have a conversation and get to know you a little bit better and have our listeners just learn a little bit about your journey. That was Birch Norton ECD over at Merge World. You can check out mergeworld.com as well as find Birch on LinkedIn. Additionally, for uh, other episodes of the Artisan Podcast, you can find us on iTunes or check out the Artisan Creative website. Thank you so much and looking forward to connecting next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Artisan Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Artisan Creative, a staffing and recruitment firm specializing in creative, marketing, and digital talent. You can find us online at artisancreative.com or via social channels at artisancreative. We look forward to connecting.